Hello and welcome to the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church. Now, normally I don't record our Wednesday night Bible studies. However, just in an effort to let our people hear what a Bible study is like, I recorded tonight. Tonight we're going to go through John chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. So, please enjoy. John chapter 3 and verse number 14. And uh, we'll start out there tonight. The Bible says in John 3, 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, here Jesus is talking about the cross. And the one word I want to focus in on this verse is, The Son of Man must be lifted up. It's that word, must. A son of man must be lifted up. Jesus came here to die. That was the reason why he came to the planet Earth. He had to be lifted up. He had to die on the cross. And there are some people that may say, well, the Jews would have accepted him. Then they wouldn't have had to do that. Jesus had to die on the cross. The son of man must be lifted up. And uh, so... Uh, If there is any possibility of redemption, if there is any experience to be born again, uh, if there is any chance of anybody being a child of God, it can only happen because the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he uses a pretty, he uses a very interesting example here in this verse. He's actually referring to an Old Testament story. And what he's referring to is in Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 through 34. And what we have here is we have the children of Israel. They had failed to enter the promised land. So because they failed to enter the promised land and they didn't do that, and then they get, get out in the wilderness and the people of Israel, they began to murmur. And they began to talk and they say, you know, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die uh, it would have been better for us if we would have been left in Egypt. And then, then they say, and this manna that, that we have, we're sick to death of this manna. I mean, I know we don't have to work for it. We don't have to do anything with it. But it's just the same, it's just the same thing every night. It's, you, know, uh, you know, I could eat Subway every single night and I'd be just fine. Get me Black Forest ham, foot long and wheat. No, I'm good. My wife can't do that. If I said she had to eat Subway every night for a week, she'd shoot me. Uh, but uh, I'm not saying she's ungrateful as the children of Israel. Let me backtrack a little bit there. But, uh, but, the, the, children of, but the children of Israel, they's like, man, this manna, we're sick to death of it. We, we loathe this manna. We're sick of it. And God just got so angry at their ungratefulness and so angry at that they were murmuring complaining that his anger was kindled against the people and so what he did is he sent these little serpents into the camp little fiery serpents little fiery deadly serpents and these serpents began to bite people and these people began to die and so as a result of the, they dying of these bites, they came to Moses and they said, Oh, Moses, we're sorry that we sinned against you. And we're sorry that we sinned against Israel. And we're very sorry for that. And look, we just can you just please beg, pray to God that we might be delivered from this plague of serpents. 
And so God goes to Moses and said, and Moses goes to God and says, God, can you help us? What can you do for us? They're sorry. And God says, here's what you do. I want you to make you a serpent out of brass, put it on a pole, and put it up in the middle of the camp. And it shall come to pass when anyone that is bitten of the serpent, if they look at that serpent, they will be healed and will not die. So Moses went and made him a serpent of brass and he put it on a pole and he set it up in the middle of the camp. And he said, look, if you get bitten by a serpent and you look at this serpent in the middle of the camp on this pole, you will be healed and you will not die. This is the basis of the medical symbol. See, medical symbol with a serpent on a pole stands for healing. It comes from the story in the Bible. And, you know, you understand that, that brass in the Bible is symbolic of judgment. And the serpent is symbolic of sin. So in a brass serpent, you have God judging Israel for their sin. Now, um, and just by looking at that serpent, they were healed and they did not die. Now, look, this is an interesting provision that God made. This is a very interesting provision and the process from I don't understand the process of how looking at a serpent on a pole can save someone's life. It's not logical. It's not scientific. It doesn't make any sense. But there doesn't have to be a physical explanation for it. There doesn't have to be a scientific explanation for it. The explanation is because God said so. You know, um, you know, this it was it was just God's covenant. It was God's provision. It's what God had said. Now, he said, all you have to do is look at it and you'll live. Now, I bet you can imagine, and I'm pretty sure there were some people in the Israeli camp who were knuckleheads, and they were stubborn, and they got bit by a serpent, and they're lying on the ground, convulsing in pain on the edge of death. And somebody comes up to them and says, look, all you have to do is look at the serpent in the middle of the camp, and you will live. And I bet that person would look at the per that other person and say, come on, man. Are you crazy? What, what in the world? I mean, looking at it, so what is that going to, that's not going to help me. That's not real advice. That's not real help. Man, give me some real help. Get me a doctor. Take me to the hospital. Don't, don't try to sell me on a fairy tale, man. And they said, but what's it going to hurt just to look? Just look and you'll see. No, man, I'm not going to look because that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I can't make any sense out of that. Man, get me some real help. I'm dying. Huh? It's not logical. It's not logical. Well, and how was a book going to save my life? Exactly. You know, and, you know, um, they said, oh, I can't understand it. You can see them there arguing until they die because they don't understand how looking will help. Let me tell you something. People are foolish. And some people, unless they understand the processes through which God work is working, they won't accept it. Almost like Nicodemus was last week. And you know, I can't explain to you how believing in Jesus Christ can uh, cause your sins to be washed away. 
I can't explain to you how believing in Jesus Christ can cause you to be born again. I can't explain to you how believing in Jesus Christ can make you a child of God. But it will, it does, and it works. It is a true process, and it's the process which, which God the Father, which he, uh, he said that was going to happen. Jesus hanging on the cross, he was, he was bearing the judgment for our sin. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We turn every one of us to our own ways. God has laid on him the iniquities of us all. How can a man be born again? How can these things be? They are a result of simply believing in Jesus Christ. Which brings us into the next two verses. Bronze is a symbol of judgment. And a serpent is a symbol of sin. So let's read verses 15 and 16. We might know these verses here. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his own... Say it, Caleb. That he gave... Very good. Very good, Caleb. Awesome, awesome. This is a loaded verse. Let's look at the first phrase. It says, For God so loved the world... Uh, John 3.16 has long been celebrated as a powerful declaration of the gospel. There are 31,373 verses in the word of God. And John 3.16, as far as evangelism goes, is probably the single most uh, famous verse used in evangelism is John 3.16. Now here's some things we learn from John 3.16. The first thing we learn is the object of God's love. The object of God's love. And it's the first part. It says, for God so loved the world. God did not wait until the world got right before he started loving it. God didn't wait until the world stopped being the world before he started loving it. God didn't wait for them to stop disobeying him. God didn't wait for them to stop rejecting him. God loved the world in spite of of himself, in spite of themselves. He loved the world when the world was still the world. And he gave his only begotten son when the world was still the world. When the world was still just as wicked and the world was still rejecting him, the object of God's world, of God's love, is the world. Next we learn the expression, the expression of God's love. And it's the next phrase. He gave his only begotten son. God didn't just feel sorry for the world and look down the world and say, Oh, my heart bleeds for them. I feel so sorry for them. And then go on about his day. God gave to the world the most precious thing that he had to give. Think in your life, what is the most precious thing you have in your life. And for me, sitting right over there. It's the most precious thing that I have in my life. And that is what God the Father gave to us. That is the gift that he gave. 
He loved us so much. He didn't just feel bad for us. He did something about it. And he gave the most precious gift that he could give. Next, we learn in John 3.16, we learn the recipient of God's love. Whosoever believeth in him. God loves the world, but the world can't benefit from the love of God if they don't believe in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Believing is more than an intellectual awareness. There are plenty of people that know Jesus existed, and there are plenty of people that know Jesus, that know about Jesus, but just the knowledge of Jesus isn't going to save anybody. You have to do more than just know. You have to believe. What does it mean to believe? Believe means to trust in, to rely on, to count on, to cling to. That's what believe means. I say it all the time. The devil knows there's a Jesus. The devil's going to hell. Okay? It's more than a knowledge. It's belief. We have to trust in, rely on, count on, and cling to Christ. Next, we learn the intention of God's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth him should not perish. Should not perish. That's the intention of God's love. God's love actually saves man from eternal destruction. Eternal destruction in hell. God looks at fallen humanity and God is not willing that any should perish. Perish. He doesn't want us to die and go to hell. He doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell. No matter what they've done, think about that. Think about the fact you can think of serial killers and you can think of, of people who have done horrible, horrible things. You can think of people of terrorists that have planned attacks and carried them out. And the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. That was why he went to the lengths that he did for fallen humanity. And that's why his love, he extends us the gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, I want you to see the duration of God's love. The duration of God's love, it says, everlasting life. Look, the love that we may receive from each other will fade. The love we may receive from each other when they may change. The love amongst us humans is going to change. It's going to fade over time. God's love will never change. God's love will never fade. In an eternity from now, God's love will be as strong today as it was when, he, when, Jesus, when God when Jesus was on the cross. God's love will never change. It will never fade. He will never stop loving his people, even into the furthest distance of eternity. God's chain, God's love will never change. Now, back in John chapter 3, verse 7, we see the Bible, Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, what this refuted was the Jewish idea of salvation. The, this idea that because I'm a Jew, I'm saved. Okay? Here, he refutes the scope of salvation. And what that means is he's saying, for God so loved the world. 
He's telling Nicodemus, he's telling this Jew, he's saying, look, not, God didn't just love the Jews. And for a lot of times, that's what the Jews thought. Man, God did all this for us. He only loves us. He's only here for us. And Jesus shatters that. He said, for God so loved the whole world, not just the Jews. So not only in this passage of Scripture did Jesus shatter the Jews' idea of salvation, of what salvation was, he shattered their scope of salvation. Salvation, he wants the Gentiles to be saved too. He wants the whole world to go to heaven. The Jews of that day rarely thought that God loved the world. They thought, oh, well, God just loves us. But the universal offer of salvation was absolutely revolutionary. That's what Jesus was. He was a revolutionary person. Now, there are many ways that you can segment up John 3.16. I'm going to give you two ways. One way was the way I just gave you. And I'm going to give it to you another way, too. Um, because I like both of the ways of how we segment up this verse. You might have heard, heard of the seven wonders of the world. Has anybody ever been to one of the seven wonders of the world? Has anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? You've been to the Grand Canyon. You've been to the seven wonders, one of the seven wonders. But, uh, there you go. Clean on a postcard. There you go. Huh? Is Niagara Falls one of them? You made that beautiful enough. I'm fixing it to look like real That was a wonder for me to see. Let us know if Niagara Falls is on there. Just chime in when you get it. Yes, sir. But what I'm going to have for you here is I have the seven wonders of John 3.16. The seven wonders of John 3.16. First, we have God. And that is the almighty authority. The almighty authority. Who's got Acts 5.29? God is the almighty final authority in our life. Not us. We're not the final authority. Our jobs aren't the final authority. Our spouses aren't the final authority. Our final authority is God. He is the almighty authority. Next, we have so love the world. That we call the mightiest motive. The mightiest motive. Who's got 1 John 3, 1? You find out about the falls, yes. and you want me to tell, you want me to read my verse or tell you the seven wonders? First? Tell tell me the seven wonders so we can get that out of the way. Okay. The Colosseum, the Colossus at Rhodes, uh -huh. the Great Pyramids, uh -huh. Painting Gardens of Babylon, okay. Lighthouse of Alexandria, Ma I don't even know how to pronounce this word, Mausoleum, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Statue of Zeus, and the Temple of so those are man-made wonders. I was talking about the regular wonders. Yeah, that's what I. But that's okay. Um, let's let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to the seven wonders of John three sixteen. What was the first one you said? We need to excuse ourselves. We have a call. We got a meeting. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. You want the natural wonders? Yeah, natural wonders, if you got it there. Harbor of Rio de Janeiro, 
First John three one. Victoria Falls was remember? Never we learned about that yesterday. You may remember I was saying Please do. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Even I'm sorry. First John three one. First John three one. Even though we disobey him, even though we reject him, he still loves us in spite of ourselves. His love is the mightiest motive. Next, we have that he gave his only begotten son. We call this the greatest gift, the greatest gift. Who's got Titus 2.14? He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. Jesus was the most precious gift that God had to give. I equate it to this. I would, don't think I would ever call up John Bell Edwards, governor of Louisiana, and say, look, I hear you got this criminal um, that you're putting to death on death row. I've got a little boy named Caleb. I will give you my little boy, and he will take the place of that criminal so that criminal will be set free. I wouldn't do that. Not a million years would I do that. But in essence, that's what God did. He gave up the most precious gift that he had to give. Next, we have that whosoever. This is the widest welcome. The widest welcome. Who's got Titus 2.11? I've got it. I've got it here. I'll read it. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Um, salvation is for everybody, for every, for every gender, for every race, for every creed, for every country, for every religion. Salvation is for everybody. Salvation isn't just to the Baptist. Salvation is for everybody. Every person, the whole race of man, salvation is for everybody. And this is just for white people. Right. Yes, ma'am. Uh, did you say... Whitest as in color or widest as in width? Widest. Widest as in width. That's what I was going to like to think myself. Did I, I, was did I say the widest welcome? No, no, I, said, widest. I said widest, widest, but it sounds. It sounds though, whenever you come out and you start to think, oh, that's just his son. That means wide. That's why you said that. The widest welcome. Well, you think about it, all these years. White people have used certain phrases in the Bible to try to make manipulate God's word to think that their race is superior to everybody else. Right, and it's just not so the case. That's my view. It was the, it was the yeah. <laughs> So, gotcha. I mean, you know, I've heard people say that Jesus was white, and I've heard people say that Jesus was black. Jesus was Hebrew. Right. I'm thinking Jesus is from the Mediterranean. Jesus, he was not. The Bible from says he has olive skin. How did uh, 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 Phil from Dunkin'? He said, "Were you there? Did you see what Jesus looked like? Mm -hmm. I've never met met him in person. Mm -hmm. I don't know what color he was. Right. I don't, I don't care, care what color he is. Like, right. Don't matter. Who he is, who he 
from. Right, exactly. But that's the fact that people well, like to choose. He's he's through, he, he was from that area. Yeah, Jesus is the same it. thing. He's here just for me. Right. You know, he's, as far he's, as that goes. he's the perfect color. Yep. There you go. Next we have believeth in him. This is the easiest escape. The easiest escape. He's got Revelation 22, 17. 22, 17 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirst come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Freely. Let me tell you something about salvation. Salvation is free. I don't have to work for it. I don't have to work to keep it. A lot of people say, oh, well, they have, you know, I get it for free, but then you got you to gotta follow in line or you'll lose it. That, that's work salvation. I didn't have to work to get it. I don't have to work to keep it. It doesn't cost me anything. That's why it's so easy because it's absolutely, positively, 100% free. Next we have should not perish. This is the divine deliverance. The divine deliverance. Who's got Psalms 32, 7? For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. You know, this is, he wants to keep me from trouble. He wants to keep me from hell. He is my deliverer. I, that he's willing that we should not perish. He is my deliverer. And then finally, but have everlasting life. This is the priceless possession. The priceless possession. Who's got Proverbs 8.35? Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Whoso findeth me findeth life. And we will live forever and ever and ever. If we believe in Jesus Christ, he will deliver us from hell. All right, so let's go on to the next two verses here. Uh, verses 17 and 18. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, Christianity is built on facts. Christianity is built on facts. And a lot of these facts are, are in this passage of Scripture right here. And those facts are connected to the history of a person. And that person is Jesus, is the Son of God. And here are three such facts. Fact number one, God sent his Son into the world. God sent his Son into the world. Now, what exactly did this fact imply? This fact implies a couple of things. Number one, it implies the separateness of existence. The separateness of existence. It says God sent his son. So here we have two separate people. There are people that believe that when Jesus was on the cross, all of God was on the cross. All of him was on the cross. It wasn't this God the Son on the cross and 
God the Father in heaven, they believe all of God was on the cross. And my question today is, okay, who was Jesus praying to? Was he praying to himself? But exactly. And this says that, that, that God sent his son. So we have these two separate individuals. So we have two separate individuals here. But next it shows the, so, the subordination of, exi of existence. The subordination of existence. We have the son submitting to the father. There are many people who believe that Jesus, because he obeys the father, is less than God the father. Because he submits to God the father, that God the father is greater than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is an in inferior being. But in actuality... The son is submitting to the father, although they are still equal. Just because he submits to his father doesn't mean they're not equal. Let me explain it this way. There was a day when I couldn't take my dad. There were many days I couldn't take my dad. That day has long since passed. <laughs> my dad's 71 years old. I'm pretty sure I could take him in a fight. He you know? You know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I could take my dad, but I still submit to his authority because he's my father. It doesn't matter, you know, which one's more powerful. What matters is, is that we have two individuals who are equal, but just because the son submits to the father doesn't mean the son is any less. They are equal. And the, this, this first fact of God sent his son into the world, that's the greatest fact in human history. That right, we are so lucky to be living in a period of time where God sent his son into the world. That is an amazing, amazing fact. Fact number two, God sent his son into the world not to condemn it. Not to condemn it. Now you would think that this is that God would send his son into the world to condemn it. I mean, you would think that God would send Jesus to come judge us. I mean, after all, look at the wickedness of the world. The world is full of ingratitude and idolatry and corruption, and rebellion, and 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 murder and abortion and uh, uh, pornography and all these things and, and the world is just chock full of this stuff so you would think if God is going to send his son in the world he's going to send his world to send his son to the world to condemn it to judge it but he doesn't especially when you especially you think that when you take into consideration what happened to all the other messengers that God sent what happened to the prophets that God sent to man they were rejected they were persecuted, they were murdered, they were martyred. Man, you would expect that God would send his son to judge us. That he would send his son to condemn us. But that brings us to fact number three. God sent his son into the world to save it. To save it. What is salvation? Salvation isn't a physical change. Salvation isn't an intellectual change. What salvation is, a salvation is a restoration of the soul. It's restoring to my soul 
what was lost through sin. Sin took some things away from my soul. Salvation restores my soul and gives my soul back what was lost. So what are some things that my soul was lost from my soul through sin? Through sin? Well, first we have the life of the soul. What is the life of the soul? It's the supreme love to God. I can have a supreme love for God because now my soul is alive. My soul is quickened. I believe that there is a God. So because I, I believe it and I trust in it, now I have a love for God that I never had before. Next, we have the happiness of the soul. Your soul isn't happy unless you're in constant fellowship with the Lord. There's, your soul is empty unless you have fellowship with the Creator. So many, that's why people lost philosophers throughout the corridors of human history have asked the question, why am I here? What's the purpose? It's because they didn't have a constant relationship with their father. They didn't have a relationship with their creator and they were empty. They couldn't be happy. And then we have the mission of the soul. The mission of the soul is for service in the Lord and to see other souls saved. That's the mission for the soul. And there is, is one person who, who can restore soul, who can give the soul back its life and give the soul back its happiness and give the soul back its mission. That is Jesus Christ. In September of 1878, there was a very dreadful accident on the Thames River in England. Uh, it was when ex an excursion steamer named the Princess Alice was cut down by a merchant steamship called the Bywell Castle. When these two ships collided in the Thames River, um, it was said that over 700 people that night met a watery grave. In the middle of this sea wreckage and people are dying, there was this one lowly fisherman with a little fishing boat. He saw the accident happen. He rowed out to the accident and he put as many people into his little fishing boat as he could. And it got to the point where his, his boat was sank so low in the water that if he would have taken one more person on his boat, the boat would have went under and everybody would have died. So he quit taking people and he started rowing back to shore. As he started rowing back to shore, he could see the white upturned faces of people that were begging him. They were saying, please don't leave us. Please take us. We don't want to die. Uh, uh, please take my child. Take my daughter. Take my son. Don't let us die. Please save us. The fisherman was so frustrated, all he could do was throw his arms up in agony and keep rowing. And he yelled out to the people as loud as he could, Oh God, that I had a bigger boat. Oh God, that I had a bigger boat. See, his heart was large enough to save everybody, but his boat wasn't. However, that is not the case with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the lifeboat for perishing mankind. And Jesus has the power to save everybody, not just to select few. Jesus has the power to save the whole human race. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's go on to 
chapter, let's go on to verses 19 through 21. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be, rep should be reproved. But he that doeth trust cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Uh, so he, 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 here's a question that I want after I read these three verses. Here's a question. What keeps people from belief in Jesus? Fear. Is it fear? Is it uh, sin? Or fear can be a sin. Is it fear or is it unbelief? Well, really, it's both. Um, people don't believe because they love their sin. They love their sin. That's why... They don't believe many opponents of Christianity. They fight against Jesus. They fight against him because they love their sin. They don't want to face their sin or they don't want to face a God who will judge them for their sin. Um, and when we think of love of sin that sends people to hell, the sins we think about, we think of the, the quote unquote big sins such as gambling, adultery, or drunkenness. And these are the sins that send people to hell. When, when in actuality, the simple demand that the Lord be Lord of your life, not fulfilling that is enough to condemn us to hell. Just that little thing of not making Lord, the, Lord, the Lord of your own life is enough to sin to deserve condemnation before God. The Bible says for everyone that doeth evil, hateth light. How, how, how do some people, and when I say light, I'm talking about the light of the gospel. This is the light of the gospel that people hate. How do people hate the light of God's truth? A couple ways. One, they express their hatred by actively fighting against it. From time to time, you'll hear me mention a man by the name of Richard Dawkins. Who knows who Richard Dawkins is? Richard Dawkins is right now, he is the most outspoken proponent atheist that actively fights against, uh, against Christianity. He wrote a book, he's an evolutionary uh, scientist, and he wrote a book called The God Delusion, okay? He actively, he's an atheist, outspoken, and he actively fights against Christianity. Now, um, what's interesting about Richard Dawkins, as opposed to other atheists, is that Richard Dawkins has went on record and say, I will only fight the Judo-Christian God. I'm not going to fight Buddha. I'm not going to fight against Allah. I'm only going to fight against the Judo-Christian God because he's the one doing the most damage. Sounds to me like at some point in his life he had some conviction. Right. Now, right. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But you know, let me stop there. I mean, that verse, if you look at that verse in the Bible, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The two words in that verse, there is, are in italics. 
What that means is, is that they, the, the translators of the Bible, in order to translate the sense, there were no words for, the, for that sense, so they put those words in there. But if you take the italicized words out, the verse says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. There's no atheist that doesn't believe in God. Everyone believes in God, whether they want to admit it or not. Because the fool has said in his heart, no God. And that's what Richard Dawkins does. And, and people like him, they actively fight against uh, the light of God's truth. Others express their hatred by ignoring God's truth. They ignore God's truth. They say, you are not worth my time. All I want to do right now, I want to eat, I want to drink, I want to be merry. I don't care about all this other stuff. Oh, if there is a God, I'll work it out with him when I see him. That's what John Wayne said before he died. John Wayne said, if there is a God, I'll work it out when I see him. Sorry, John. I love McClintock, but this is, that's going to be too late, John. That's going to be too late. You know, um, and people just... And people, they, they ignore God and they say, you're not worth my time and I'll work it out later and I'll figure it out later. And what it is, is they're afraid of the bright light of the truth of the gospel. When electric lights were first introduced, theaters all over America and theaters all over Europe were so excited. And the high-dollar theaters that could afford it, as soon as electric lights were available, they began to buy and install electric lights in their theaters. Well, it wasn't very long after these theaters bought these electric lights that these theaters that bought them took the electric lights out and put the gas lights back in. Now, that didn't make any sense. The electric lights were more efficient, they were better, and it would make no sense why would they take the electric lights out and put the old, less efficient dimmer get glass lights back in. Well, the reason was this. The reason was, is when they put the electric lights in, the furniture that they use on the stage, it looked shabby. You see? That's right. You see, these furniture they had to use... They had to use this furniture over and over, and they couldn't afford more furniture to use for these plays. And so these, this furniture would get wore out and just looked run down and looked shabby. Another reason why they did this is because the paint on the actors' faces. When you were in the dim gas lights, you couldn't really tell the actors had paint on their faces. But the electric lights, it was so uh, apparent that the actors were wearing paint that it was distracting. Another reason for this was the actors' costumes. The actors' costumes—they were second—they uh, were—they were second-hand hand-me-down costumes. They were patched up, sewed up. They had threads hanging off of them. And in the bright electric lights, man, those—it just the the crudeness of their costumes—it showed through. And so the gas lights were reinstalled. The same is true for man. They refused to come into the bright light of the gospel because it would show them that their life <coughs> is a sham. Their life is a sham. The darkness of sin does not show dirt, but the bright light of the gospel does. 
Man loved darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil.